0: Welcome to DBP, the Drunk Bitches Podcast. I'm Jamie. And I'm Sarah. Each episode, we pair a wine with a topic where you get more lip with each sip. So let's get started.
1: But first, pass the wine, bitch.
0: Hey, DB peeps. It is time for episode taxation for the wine nation. We're excited to drink this because we don't often have a great opportunity to drink French wines. Because they're usually not named anything really cool and clever. But so we're drinking a Chateau Neuf de Pop, which is oh, going to be so delicious. So like, good, one of my favorites. Yes, you're the first person that ever introduced me to Chateau Neuf de Pop or oh CDP. Oh my gosh, for sure. Feel, I feel so special. Yeah. So what we're drinking today is a 2016 La Bastide Saint-Dominique from the Southern Rhone Valley. And Sarah and I, this is another lucky episode because Sarah and I both have the wine to open. So we're both so excited. And we have the same vintage, which is also so exciting. Yeah, we got this at a wine tasting uh, maybe a year ago. So that is why we kind of lucked out with this whole situation. And this is actually a blend. It is 80% Grenache. 10% 10% Syrah, 7% Move, Edge, and 3% Sinso. I'm gonna pour it, this. It also says to aerate it. Oops. That's okay. I'll um, aerate it with my mouth. I have <laughs> I have my little buzzer thingy. Oh, but there think- you go. I'm gonna do that while you're pouring. I should have used my. <laughs> oh, that is so cool.
1: You guys should see this. It's
0: it so, sounds questionable if
1: you are, have like your eyes closed. I should have used my bottle aerator,
0: but eh, you know. Just swirl it a lot. You know, I'll swirl it. Like I said, you'll be fine. Uh, this is a wine. It's 15% ABV. So it is, it's up there. And uh, we, we actually purchased it for about $28, but typically you can find it for anywhere between like 33, 37-ish. Yeah, it and 28,
1: $28 is a great price for a Chat's to Pop. So, yeah. All right, we're going to cheers
0: ourselves. Cheers, friend. Already, oh. we're off to a good start. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. This is good. It's like,
1: Jamie, I love your face. You're <laughs> just like so happy in the moment
0: <laughs> of drinking the wine. I feel like when you see like gerbils or something, like it's drinking water, it's like, you know, it's just like licking everything, lapping it all up. All right. So this guy is a very, it's like a ruby color. It's very dark and opaque and it's so lovely. And It's very dark. Yeah. Definitely fuller bodied.
1: Definitely fuller bodied. Um, so this is a 2016, which was actually one of the really good years for chef mm-hmm. to, to Pop. So they had excellent weather. So we lucked out that we have this bottle and that we get to... Uh, share it together.
0: Yes. Virtually. Observing social distancing. I know. We're distant socializing. That's what we're doing. We got to keep this podcast going. So this particular wine, like you said, I mean, it's about four years old. So they typically say that chateauneuf de Pop or CDP should be aged about three to 12 years in general. So we don't want to go anything too beyond that. It's not really going to hold as well as some of those Bordeaux French wines. But I thought that the notes that you found about this particular wine... Oh, they're interesting. So it's 19 acres of vineyards that are anywhere from 25 to 80 years old. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And that's pretty typical for the region because they have some of the oldest vines in France. Yeah. And especially the the Southern Rhone in general has some of the oldest vines in France. So you can find vines up to 100 years old. Oh,
0: Yeah. Um, And as as they get older too, the important thing to remember is that they don't have as much fruit that is produced. That means it's more concentrated fruit and flavors within the berries that actually do come up on the plant. And so it's really challenging. You don't get high yields at all. And that's another reason why some of the prices of these go a little bit higher.
1: Yeah, and actually they don't want high yields. You're not allowed to have high yields. Um, That's part of some of their rules for the region um, because it does produce thin watery wine if they do have high yields. So part of the rules is that they have to have low yields. And then interestingly enough, some of the other uh, Do you the feel the rules? warmth like going through your body. It's really good.
0: I like I just feel I feel it's still continuing down my esophagus. It's so It's like warm. medicine
1: for the soul, right? Yes.
0: <laughs> oh <laughs> my god, it's just so nice. Okay, sorry. I interrupted. That was an ideal interruption. Um,
1: <laughs> no, so you aren't allowed to make wine from vines that are younger than 4 years in um Sheftonoff to pop. So
0: that makes sense.
1: Yeah. But, you know, that's not a mostly not a problem there. So what else about this particular wine? Because I am really excited to talk about CDP
0: in general. For this wine specifically and just CDP in general, they use a lot of stainless steel or mm-hmm. uh, concrete amphor, amphorae. Yeah. I don't know how you pronounce it. Instead of using oak barrels for much of their grapes, specifically Grenache, This particular wine that we're drinking, though, uh, was totally destemmed and had 18 days of vatting in stainless steel tanks. So they use this cap punching. So when you're fermenting berries and wine to make wine, what forms on the very top is this like crusty cap of all like the skins and the stems and all that jazz and seeds. And so you need to basically keep punching it down or put pumping uh, wine or the liquid over it so that it stays moist. Favorite word. So oh, damn. Yeah, because otherwise <laughs> uh, it can definitely start to get bacteria. So this is also a controlled temperature ferment, 20 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that translates to. But yeah, they also aged it in 18 months before
1: they bottled it. Uh, yeah. So You know, we'll kind of talk a little more about the tasting notes as this opens up. So, do you know what Chateauneuf de Pop means? I mean, I do, but can you please tell us? It's kind of cool. It means New Castle of the Pope. Mm -hmm. And tell us why. So, in the early 14th century, Avignon, which is one of the towns that's on the border of Chateauneuf de Pop, was chosen as a new home for the Pope's court. So that is why that's where the name comes from, which I never knew. Yeah. Did you know that? I did. I mean, I learned it in my class last week. But yeah, no,
0: a lot of wine, when you in Europe as well as in the New World, especially uh, like California, the early stages of our viticulture history, it has a lot to do with the church. And that's true where like the science and everything was kept and carried was through monks, monasteries. The Catholic church had a lot of vineyards in order to produce their wine for mass and things like that. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's really kind of funny when you associate church with wine, but I mean, I guess I was associated church with bad wine, but
1: <laughs> I mean, that's how all said. this became came started. And I guess the Pope was Clement V. And he okay. was a wine lover and he was really into like even the wine and vineyard management. Um, and he his taste was more to Burgundy, but the next Pope, John the Twelfth, was a fan of Shechinov de Pop. Okay. he improved some of the practices in the region. And at the time these wines were known as Vin de Pop. So wine oh, of the wine Pope. Wine of the Pope. And they did make a lot of local wine for church. So you're absolutely
0: right, Jamie. Thanks. I'm glad I learned something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, so, I have to sorry, I do have to go on record. I think last episode I misspoke about where Tuscany was. I said it was in the calf of Italy. It's not in the calf of Italy. It's on the shin bone of Italy, if you're talking about the boot. How oh, dare you get that Mont- boot wrong? So sorry about that. <laughs> I digress, but I just had to call out my error and correct it. Uh, well, thank you for that clarification, Jamie. Yeah. Well,
1: speaking of maps. So Chateauneuf-du-Pape is uh, an appellation in the southern Rhône between the towns of Orange and Avignon. And it's the largest appellation in the Rhône. It's about 8,000 acres. But you have to think that's large for France. However, Napa is still bigger than that. Yeah. Just something to kind of keep in mind. Um, I believe it's the most south, south of the Rhône, the
0: the southest Um, of the south. it's not quite. There are still other Appalachians that are like, kind of like around it and go a little bit further south. But this is certainly one of, I mean, it's one of the most prestigious ones that is out there. Yes.
1: So if you think about other Appalachians in the Southern Rome, Coterone is probably one of the most, I would say, I think more recognizable ones. It definitely um, is. Other ones that people might might see. Let's see. There is of the southern southern Rhones. That's probably the most popular, the Coca-Rhone. And Village. I had a Gigandaz yesterday. Yes. And that is also, it's more north of Châteauneuf de Pop, but it's also in the southern Rhone. Okay. I like I like the wine coming out
0: of there. Something that just popped into my head as we're starting to get into spring, although it's looking pretty crappy out here by me. There is an AOC called Tavel. In mm-hmm. the Southern Rhone, which only makes rosés, and they're supposed to be exceptional rosés. Oh, so if anyone's starting wow. to, you know, rosé all day in quarantine, or just as things start to warm up, like by all means, see if you can find one. That's going to be my next goal. Nice. Yeah. 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 So, other interesting things.
1: So, Châteauneuf du Pape is mostly red. There is a white. Um, you can get some white, but ninety-five percent is going to be red. Um, and it has to be made from certain grape varieties. Most of the time, it's Grenache-based. So mm-hmm. that's 80% of the vineyards are Grenache. Mm-hmm. And the GSM is the most common. Those are the most common grapes used. So that would be Grenache, Syrah, Muvedra. Right. I have heard that more modern winemakers are putting less Syrah in the wine and using some of the other grapes. Is that Uh, right? But that being said, there's several other, I think, given on what source you look, there's anywhere from like 14 to like 20 varieties that are permitted. The big Um, debate. Yeah. And uh, they're grown, you know, Grenache is grown until it's sweetly ripe. Like you said, they're usually made in like um, large cement or stainless steel tanks because they don't make them in oak because... The Grenache is susceptible to oxidation. And so wooden porous barrels are not ideal. And also they don't really want that vanilla taste imparted onto the wine. Right. So you'll find that most of the wine is very true to the terroir. Yeah. Other grapes are made in large old barrels called, oh God, I might slaughter this. Foudras. Sure. Okay. Um, but they are some Works interesting for me. rules.
0: Interesting rules to the appellation. Foudra so- is also like ginormous. Yeah, I know. It's so huge. So you, you said nothing. that they don't want like vanilla or whatever. Sarah, yeah. this reminds me of, remember when we were at Joseph Phelps? Yeah. And they had those big ones for the oh. Riesling. I'm pretty sure that's what this is. They're just yes. absolutely huge. You could probably have a party inside of one of these things. You said they don't want vanilla. They basically mm-hmm. want the grapes to do the talking. Exactly. These wines—they don't want anything extra to to impart those flavors. They want it to be the pure wine. And the cool thing about using so many different varietals, or being allowed to use so many different varietals, is that you can really kind of pick and choose and make a very complex wine just based upon the characteristics of each of those individual grapes. So, in that sense, they do have a lot of, I guess, freedom.
1: But there is a lot of rules. The wines have to be at least twelve point five percent ABV.
0: I wouldn't want a red wine anything less.
1: This is true. Um, They can't water after August 15th.
0: Interesting. They can't water their... I I don't know why. why? I don't know. (laughs) I'm going to theorize that it's because they don't want to risk having them be too waterlogged because when you start to water things, they become less dense and less concentrated flavors. That's why like when harvest comes roughly around like August, September-ish. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody tries to avoid harvesting right after a rain because the grapes have just soaked up so much extra water that they become less flavorful. And that's mm-hmm. kind of defeats the purpose of what well, you're trying to do. This is
1: true. And um, if you want to look up just kind of what the vines look like here. Oh, they um, look cool. They look so cool. So it is a very Mediterranean climate. It's it's hot and dry. It's the it's the driest of all the Rhone Appalachians. And The ground is actually formed from ancient riverbeds of various ages, so the soils are pebbly and sandy. Mm -hmm. And they have these things called galettes, which are basically remnants of ancient alpine glaciers, and they're like huge stones and pebbles, um, which is good and bad. They're good because they protect the ground from becoming really hot, and they hold moisture in the soil. So the vines can actually get the water yeah. from the soil, but they do hasten ripening. So you have to be kind of careful with that. And the vines, they have to be kept close to the ground to be able to obtain this moisture from the soil. And that's usually from the Rhone River. Um, you'll also hear something called mistral, which is refers to the powerful winds oh, yeah. that they have in the Rhone, which is the other reason that they're kind of kept closer to the ground to kind of protect themselves from the winds as well so it's it's kind of I don't know I find it really cool um and I think that a lot of the wines that you're going to get are going to have those like flavors of the terroir like the stone the soil the earth leathery notes kind of things like that um and you're still going to get some of the bright fruit but you you do really taste where it's from Mm -hmm. um they are required to have the lowest yields in France. And that's 368 gallons per acre. Okay. I have to say the most interesting thing I found out about chateauneuf the pop. Yes. One of their rules that they have. Have you heard of this rule? I don't know. Tell me what the and rule is. And I thing. feel like this goes back to an episode we just did a few weeks ago. And you're going to know once I tell you what this rule is. Okay. And you listeners, you, go, you got to go back and listen. I mean, like I, when I read this, I was just floored. So- There's a lot of history to shaft enough to pop. It was not always great. It was not always the best quality wine in France. It was, you know, it was actually-
0: That's a more recent thing, right? Yeah.
1: It's more recent since the seventies. The quality has really increased significantly, but the winemakers have always been dedicated to the land. In 1954, the winemakers mandated that flying saucers were strictly forbidden from flying in the airspace (laughs) or landing on their territory.
0: About how that's an actual rule. Okay, so number one, episode 91, if you want to revisit that conversation, any of our DB peeps. But wait, so this is a wine region that made that rule?
1: Shat's enough to pop. It's an official rule. It's like a law.
0: there is there history of a flying saucer or UFO landing? No. I'm pretty sure if there are aliens that they're not, they're going to say, I don't give a fuck. And they're going to land wherever the fuck they want. yeah um, wow, that's I'm incredible. like, do you know something we don't? yeah this that's is incredible. very interesting, yeah, they probably put it out in Morse code to like the universe, like <laughs> just, I mean, don't land here, just like what what are we talking about here? Wow, I wonder who was behind that. They probably had drunk a few too many. Glasses or bottles of. Dude,
1: I I would love to be a fly on the wall to that conversation or actually even be in that conversation. That would be so much fun. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So I feel like I could easily go through this whole bottle. I'm sorry.
1: I know it is. It is. Well, you know, you don't have to share it with me now because I know, (laughs) but I
0: kind of wish I had to.
1: I know, right? Yikes. So, um, what are we talking about today besides
0: this beautiful wine we're drinking? All right. So, our taxation for the wine nation. It's a very relatively hot topic Yes, because something that was passed out in October was a tariff. Well, I'm going to take a step back, step back further. There was a proposal to have a 100% tariff on certain European goods. 100%? Why would people do this? Okay. The U.S. decided to do this. This is what I have come to understand because this is all part of like this whole Airbus tariff situation. What? Okay. Jamie, Airbus?
1: What does that have to
0: do with wine? Airbus, like the plane maker. Yeah. I know. Mm -hmm. I
1: understand. But what does that have to do with wine? It doesn't. Why are
0: you messing with my wine? Exactly. It does not. All right. So first of all, Airbus, I'm going to totally admit I didn't really think very much where it came from, but it's apparently in Europe. And there are a number of countries who are part of Airbus, the corporation. Mm-hmm. We in the U.S. have Boeing, right? This is like our big deal. So I guess probably like 15, 20 years ago, there were certain subsidies given to Airbus by the European Union. Okay. And it gave Airbus like a, a higher leg up, an advantage. Okay. And the U.S. is pretty pissed about it because, in all honesty, the sanctions or the subsidies that were provided to Airbus essentially prohibited people or reduced people's desire to want to use Boeing, but it also, I think, you know, it just impacted, like, our job market and our economy, okay? So yes. essentially, what this kind of boils down to, or so it seems from the what I've been able to glean from various articles, is that... This is sort of a retaliation for that, like a long time. ago. Okay. There used to be ten percent tax on any Airbus produced airplane parts, but the weird part, and I still am not quite sure how this happened, but I think it's one of those like retaliatory tactics for oh, lack of a better terminology. Okay. But just to be like, huh, we don't like what you did, so we're just going to throw in some of your favorite things into this tariff, uh, into this tax bill too. And we're just going to start taxing them more. So that includes a number of certain European agricultural goods. So some of that is like Kerrygold butter, um, single malt whiskies and scotches, certain wines, certain cheeses, olives, cashmere. I think is one of them. So is this from all European countries, or is there a specific? No, one? there are. Okay, so I'll say that it's. I found the federal register. So this is like the super geeky stuff, but like there is like an actual thing from October that has so many tables. I mean, this is the government, but so many tables outlining what country this is uh, limited to, what the duty or the tax Mm -hmm. is going to be, the tariff. And what those goods are that fall under that category. So in some lists, you know, it's specific to Germany. In other lists, it's France, Germany, Spain, or the UK. That's where wine kind of falls under. Okay. Uh, that has it's, it's not 100%, thank God. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I would do if it was 100%, but it's 25%. Which is more than it used to be, but they were thinking of doing one hundred percent, yes until and recently, so, right? Yes, yeah, so I guess these conversations have been going on for a while they 've been trying to you know negotiate a little bit since last, since two thousand and eighteen and then last year, it finally came to a head, and there was I think a really big push from the industry to say, you cannot tax wine and other things like olives. 100% that's absolutely ridiculous and so the good news is that it's not that high but it is still 25% and one thing that I'll say is that it's specific to um, still wines that are less than 14% ABV that's such a weird requirement I, I know but like even if you think about it from here and from the U.S. perspective there is a threshold for I think 14% is the threshold too where certain companies if you're under 14 or under, I think it's 14. If you're under 14, you are taxed at one rate. And if you're over 14, then you're taxed at another rate. Just Ah, as a a producer here in the U.S. If I was a winemaker, I'd be going for that 14.1% ABV. Maybe this is what we'll see in the future. And we'll see that the French wines and it's Germany, France, Germany, France, and Spain, and the UK. Now the UK... I'm just gonna say the UK does make wine. It's typically not like imported to or exported to well, the US. I think it's more their whiskey, right?
1: Their whiskey, their does scotch. The UK makes whiskey.
0: Yeah, Scotland and oh yes, you're right. Sorry, I, <laughs> I immediately thought Britain. Sorry, I meant to say Britain makes wine, which I think is weird. But yeah, they definitely... but they make a lot of sparkling, so I don't. You know, we love to try some. We don't see much of that
1: here. What we see a lot here from there is, like you said, the butter and things like that, and then and scotch. Yep, the scotch and the whiskey. So, you know, it's just crazy to me. Well, I guess our Italian wines and our Portuguese wines are excluded from this. Yeah. Um. So that's positive, but you know, for some French lovers like the person I live with, (laughs) and I love French wine too. I. You can't say that I'm like really sad about the Spanish wine because I don't really oh, buy much it. of that. You know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but hey, I love myself some German Riesling and you know that's less than 14% ABV.
0: Yeah, pretty much all of them. Yes, exactly. All of
1: them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I mean this will affect a lot of things. So and I, I think it's crazy that it's also not just the wine, but it's like cheese and coffee and
0: Sarah. The list goes on. Like I I mean, I just stumbled upon the the federal register. It's fucking insane. And there's like yogurt. Oh, right. I just found all the cheese. And that goes into like Austria, Belgium, Bulgaria, Croatia, Czech Republic, Denmark, Hungary. That's, like, a whole mess of countries,
1: and those are
0: 25% as well. Now, when we talk about, like, really nice cheeses and, like, wine pairings, like, what the fuck are we going to do? I know. Well, we live in Wisconsin,
1: so we get a lot of good cheese, but- I agree. That's There's a lot true. of good French stuff out there, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And this is a lot of countries. I mean, yeah. wow. This is definitely hard hitting. And I think in France, from their perspective, what they have described is that already with this, because it became effective October 18th of last year. So that's when it became 25 The 25%. Okay. And just wine specifically, the wine exports to the US have plummeted 33% since the tariffs were imposed. And that's according to the French Federation of Wine and Spirit Exporters, or the F-E-V-S, FEVs. Wow. They also estimate about 4,000 jobs in these export firms alone are in peril. And it yeah. could take up to a decade to re- regain. Now, I'm certainly sympathetic to the French wine negociants and things like that kind of taking a hit. And I get it. However... I know that we also have like our own problems here in the States. <laughs>
1: well, right now we definitely do.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but I don't know if this just, it
0: does still affect us. That's the thing. It does. I'll also just say like, we need to reevaluate this next year. Supposedly the US trade representative has to re-review the entire thing by August of this year. But so when did they decide not
1: to go to hundred percent? Did they do anything else instead? Because I know that was very recent. Well, they decided in October to do the 25%, but they were reevaluating the 100% in February and they decided not to do that. And instead that they were going to pay, that they were going to tax more on airplane parts.
0: Yeah. So they increased the airplane parts. I mean, this is the fucking Airbus thing. Like, duh. And so they went from 10%, they raised it 5%. So it's up to 15% tax on airplane parts, which, I mean, doesn't seem like that that large, but think about the cost of all of these parts. And How much a part sure. costs? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it I was
1: think, they did that in place of raising the tariffs to the proposed one hundred percent.
0: Um I think they were going to raise that anyway on airplane parts. That's oh, like kind of what precipitated okay. this. But you're right; they did. They opted to just kind of raise that effective March eighteenth, so just a couple weeks ago to. Limit the amount of tariff on those European wines and other agricultural goods. So that is for the time being, we're set at twenty five percent until maybe later this year. I don't. You better buy
1: your wines in bulk, guys. Well, they're saying French wine.
0: Yeah, I mean, in
1: case it gets worse, I mean, I don't know. So interesting that you brought up the Fevs. Oh yeah, what about them? um, The the VP. Uh, is um, Louis Fabrice Latour, who's head of Louis Latour, which if anyone (laughs) knows good French wine, you know that that is some like pretty heavy shit. And so he said that the U.S. was their biggest market ahead. Yeah. And this is before they announced, you know, the whole 100% that they weren't doing that. Um, And that small wineries – Find the US tariffs more difficult because they tend to work with smaller scale US distributors who are also under extra financial pressures. Mm -hmm. Um, And that their value of burgundy exports had fallen significantly in the final two months of 2019. So much so that it caused a 40 million loss in sales, which is insane if you think about how much money that is. However, I have read that the exports to China have increased. They have increased from from Burgundy. Yeah, you know, China loves China loves a good French wine. It is um, also has
0: it also has damaged some of the Scotch whiskey exports from the UK. Oh, I'm sure. So those Scotches, I mean, they're expensive. To Sean with like Scotch anyway. They are expensive. Like yeah. I just can't even imagine what they're going to cost now. Tack on a quarter of the price. Like what the hell? That's... I know,
1: right? But I don't think that people understand that this is not just like. We're in, and especially now, we are kind of in a unique situation in the world right now. The world is fucked right now. Yeah, the world is kind of fucked. Regardless, I don't think that this is something that is just going to hurt the, the Europeans. This can hurt like our industry as well. How?
0: Okay, so how will it impact us?
1: Because our restaurants are already operating on pretty thin margins as we can kind of see with what's happening right now. And some of them are very dependent on the sales of European wine. For example, if you have an Italian and French rest, or I shouldn't say Italian because they're not included, but if you have a French restaurant or you have a restaurant that, you know, you want to offer like all the varieties of wine and a lot of people like are really into Burgundy or French wine or, you know, Spanish wine or like if, for example, if you have a Spanish restaurant. Yeah. It, or if you just have a restaurant that you want to have a robust wine list, then- Oh, yeah. This, like around the world, yeah. Exactly. Sure. This actually ends up hurting a lot of American businesses because we have a three-tier system in the U.S. So wine has to pass from a U.S. importer and a distributor to the re- the restaurant before it ends up in your glass. It's not like you're getting it straight from France. the winery in France, right? Yeah. So Actually, for, we learned
0: about this a little bit with Lovino, with Jenner, Yeah, right? Yeah, exactly.
1: For every $100 a European wine sold in the U.S., 75 to 85 ends up in the hands of the American
0: business. Meaning like the distributor, not necessarily who is selling you the wine, but yeah, through like various American business hands.
1: Exactly. So it might end up being that a lot of these restaurants can't offer these wines anymore because they just won't be able to afford it.
0: Yikes, bikes.
1: Or they can't afford it without putting it as an extravagant price on the menu, which, you know, is going to limit its its use. And, and then... You don't have, like, the way that they decide on wines on a restaurant venue has a lot to do with, like, how much are you going to sell, you know? But a lot of restaurants, the way they make money is off alcohol. It'll be interesting how we see that this hurts. I was going to say, the other thing is, is, like, the United States, we've been starting to drink a lot more
0: wine. Yes. The numbers, wait, the numbers over the last couple of years have been, like, going down, and we've seen decreases. But now they've been, like... I don't want to say skyrocketing, but they've been like up on the upswing again, especially given this whole like global pandemic. Honestly, we're all it drinking. Had, it well, it's had an impact, I think, because if you think about it, like you can get bottles of wine, and this is all that I need for a drink. That's all that I need. I just need this one bottle of things. Get it shipped to your house. Like,
1: I mean, it's not like you need to go anywhere to get your wine. I mean, right. There are several ways to obtain it without
0: actually leaving. Absolutely. So I'm I'm happy for wine. I'm happy that they're getting like, you know, another uptick in their sales. Yeah,
1: me too. But we drink a lot of wine now as a nation and we have good wine in this country. We make, I mean, we, and I'm all about America made. We source our own from, you know, especially Oregon and California. You see a lot Mm -hmm. of great wine, but could we keep up solely with the demand? You know, that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. I don't think we could.
0: I I don't think we could without sacrificing quality. Let's put it that way. Okay. That's exactly what I was going to say because I think that we could because like one of our first episodes is when people like jumped on the the Merlot bandwagon. Yeah, Everyone fucking planted Merlot and it's an easy grape to grow. It's an easy grape to produce and like you can do a lot of shit with it. Just throw a bunch of wood chips in it or something like that and like produce cheap wine yeah, I get nervous about the proliferation of really crappy wine. That being said, I'm sure that we have we can produce enough in the country in order to make those less thirsty.
1: You know what I mean? i I do know what you mean, but I don't I think our quality will go down significantly it because could, it could. it could because to order to mass produce the quantity that would probably need to keep up with how much we're drinking, I think that we would see, especially in California, it would be very difficult to kind of know what you're getting in terms of, you know, how good is the wine?
0: Also remember so, that like a lot of wines made here, I think in the U.S. especially, I think not as much from the old world, they are actually made so that you drink them like right now. We can bend the rules more
1: in yeah, the United States this in is terms true. of
0: like what you do, like you said, with the
1: wood chips, like there's a lot of different things you can do so that you can now, mass produce. we have, produce. I mean-
0: we definitely have like our own restrictions and rules and things like that. And if you put, like, you can't put certain things on your label if you don't adhere to, you know, right? Certain practices, that's for sure. But by and large, I think the European countries have more stringent rules on how you, how and what you make in terms of wine.
1: I just don't think that the Europeans would be able to mass produce a bunch of wine.
0: Oh no, because
1: they don't have they have so many rules. And we don't have as—I mean, we have rules for sure, like you said, but not as many. And so, I think that that is just kind of one of those things to think about in terms of quality, uh, you know, in in the wine that you drink and what you want to drink going forward.
0: Basically, what we're saying, or what you're, it sounds like what you're I'm trying saying to say in a
1: very nice way. <laughs>
0: Go ahead, Jamie. <laughs> is that we need to, I think, be more methodical about what wines we choose to purchase and drink. And also to stock up.
1: <laughs> I'm going to be stocking up on some French.
0: I know. Now I'm actually, I really love the chateauneuf to Pop. So I'm it's like, really oh good. shit. Like, but this I one wouldn't probably... be affected,
1: right? Because it's 15%.
0: That's true. But for instance, one of our local wine shops that we often go to, is, what are we going like, to call them up and be like, hey, can we get anything less than, than 14% ABV? Can you check that for all of our French wines? You mean anything more than 14%, right? No, if we're oh yeah, I guess yeah, that's true. Yeah, I was gonna say if we're gonna stock up and for fear oh, that it if might we're go gonna up stock
1: up more, I mean you better get if you like that German Riesling, you better get on that because you're not Fine. gonna find much of that.
0: weren't you supposed to go to a Trimbach Riesling tasting?
1: God, don't even remind me. I'm sorry. I'm so sad about it. I was, and the daughter of Trimbach Winery was coming. That all got canceled. So sad. We all know why, but there's bigger not because thing- of the tariff. No. Because of – Because of Corona. Because of Corona. So um, this is a good time to stock up since I'm
0: hanging out at home. I have to admit, I'm not typically like a very political human being, but – and I never – like I started hearing about this and I was like, but how is it really going to impact me? I do tend to like more alcoholic wines. (laughs) That's just my nature. but. In all honesty, like it makes me have to be a little bit more thoughtful. And then also like that means we're probably not going to see as many of their wines exported. So if you do have some favorites, now is probably the time because if they're on store shelves now, they might not be later. That's the other that's thing. Yeah, it just might not be available. Yeah. So,
1: so um, back that's the wine. Yeah. What do you think of this wine?
0: Girl, I mean, that's... I had poured myself a big glass, a big DVP glass too. A DVP pour? Me. Yes, it was a DVP pour. Awesome. I did not fill it up to DVP. Oh, that's what we should call a DVP pour. Up to our DVP. All right. It's just so lovely, and I feel like I've done too much already. Uh, that's not possible. There's a lot of earth. It's a little more like – You no. know when you walk into like a forest, like you smell? Oh, forest, is like forest? a really nice, warm smell. Yeah. I get mm-hmm. that. It's slightly potpourri-ish, but not like in like a grandmother's potpourri way. Yeah. It's nice and deep. Hmm. It's I would say medium to heavy. It's complex. Like you could drink this for yeah, a good amount and get a lot of different notes. <clears throat> I'm going black cherry. I'm going yep. dark plum. Like black plum. Not like red, not like fresh, bright. Uh, this yeah. is like brooding, it's for sure. Ooh, brooding. I like that. Um I like what you're saying because I'm gonna tell you what the winemaker says once what you're done. Do you have any I more mean, notes? Kind of like okay, wait, that was smell. It's actually like a medium plus tannin. It's it's very much there, but it's not like an overpowering tan. No, it's not. Um, over- it's probably again old. like medium acidity. It is more alcoholic. It's very, very complex. It has a big mouth feel for sure. Yes, I'm trying to think in terms of I want to say a dried flower of some sort, but not like overwhelming sense. Just like a hint, just like an an under layer, just like a very fine line. Little you're- like sorry, little chalk. There's like a little like chocolaty. Like if you're like an instant coffee rub on like a meat or something like i don't know what it is oh, nice sorry no that's that's really nice i like that so the winemaker says that is
1: very intense nose of jammy red fruits kirsch liqueur is. kirsch is like a like a german liqueur like a cherry oh okay. uh and blackberries after a re- aeration more complexity with notes of Pepper, cardamom, and resiny pine forest. There you go, girl. Opulent attack in a crunchy style with full-bodied and elegant tannins. Crunchy. Crunchy. I don't know about Mm. the crunchy style. It's kind of weird. Opulent, Um, though. I mean, like this is- It is
0: opulent. Yeah.
1: (sighs) I respect your opulence.
0: I know. (laughs) And then pleasant freshness at the finish with spice notes. We talked about how there's not like a bunch of oak on it. So it's not anything like that, but there's definitely- there's definitely something because there's like a heat and it's not necessarily alcohol heat, like at the back of my throat. Like a like a wasa- a wasabi. I used this the other night. I wouldn't call it wasabi because I don't feel like it's like clear in your nose in my cavity. So I used it actually
1: for the and daz I drank the other day. Really? It gave me like that the wasabi in the nose feeling. Really? Yes. But okay. the spiciness could be from the Syrah. I mean.
0: And like the pepper and stuff. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. For sure. No, this is delightful. It's It's really good. It's a very, I mean, I didn't normally, normally when we record, we have like snacks, right? But like, Mm -hmm. I don't have a snack. I have a little bit of cheese
1: here. But like, I don't. I'm glad you mentioned that because they do have food pairing recommendations. Oh, what should we pair it with? Well, they're kind of involved here. So they recommend a saddle of <laughs> lamb roasted in juniper berry. I mean, you if you have that, myself. if you have that on hand, go for it. Nope. A terrine of pheasant and dried fruits, or a also roe deer, a roe deer with pears. A what? Roe deer with pears. So I mean, I think I don't that, have of that. <laughs> many of us don't have those things on hand. However, you kind of get the gist of it. So, like, gamey stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Dried fruits, you know. But any, like, the Southern Rhone wines, most of
0: them are known to pair very well with cheese. Wine Folly says to pair it with roasted and spiced vegetable-driven dishes. I think I'm a little hesitant to pair this with too much spice because I don't want it to bring out too much of the spice in the wine. But this is just...
1: Listen, this is how I feel. I like the wine so much. I don't need to pair it with food.
0: I'm good. See, that's how I feel. That's exactly how I feel right now. You know, so we're good. One thing, you mentioned that 2016, what we're drinking is like an exceptional year. Vintage. Yeah. Vintage. Yeah. 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 So 2017, because you'll probably start to see those on the shelves or available. 2017 was also a good year, but it is, it was um, a drought year. And so it didn't have quite as big of a harvest as 2016. Ah. Okay. Okay. 2018 was also a good year. It's, it was rainier. It was cooler. But if you go further backwards, like 2015 was also good. It's fruitier and less herbal. And so, I mean, those are probably the best ones within the last handful of years, unless you go back towards like 2012, 2011.
1: So what I would tell everybody is since we're, most of us are sitting for you know, home right now, get on, <laughs> get on the computer and look up if you can find a good deal on one. If you've never tried it, because it is definitely worth the experience of having one of these wines. Um, I, you know, I know some of them are kind of on the
0: pricier side, but But you you probably can find some deals right now. Now that we are, you know, stuck in our homes, it's not a problem to to treat yourself. And the other thing too, I'm going to get on my like little rant, my soapbox for a minute. Like it's okay to buy good wines. It's okay to drink those good wines. Don't save them for like some special occasion because the other thing is like, like we learned at the beginning of the episode, like these should only age from three to 12 years. Mm -hmm. You could surpass its peak and that would just make it really like not- Sad. Yeah, sad. (laughs) That's exactly right. So if you have an opportunity and it's within your means, like this would be a great option for you. And remember there's about four to five glasses in each bottle of wine. So just Consider how much you would pay it if you go out with your friends.
1: All that restaurant money you're saving these days, right?
0: Exactly. Well, that's where we are with our tariffs on wine. So stock up if you feel the need to. Otherwise, just buy the higher ABV and you're fine. It's a cheaper way to get drunk, right? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) All right. So until next time, DB Peeps, we love you. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform to help spread the DBP word. Check out our website and blog at dbpcheers.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at DBP Cheers or on the Drunk Bitches Podcast Facebook page. We'd love to hear from
1: you. So send your questions, comments, and
0: fun wine or topic ideas
1: to dbpcheers at gmail.com. Until next time.
0: Cheers from the girls of DBP.